I'd ask you to open your Bibles with me to the New Testament book of Acts as we're continuing a verse-by-verse study in the book of Acts that is giving us an example of the very first Christian church. And this is really important because we're going to learn, and we're going to learn today, a lot about the very first Christian church, and we're going to learn a lot about this from one single verse. For those of you who might be with us for the first time, maybe online, Paris Valley Church is what we call a church plant. It's a church that wasn't here before, and it started. The church started in 2017, and we started holding, uh, we started holding Sunday morning services in 2018. And then came COVID a little while later. And that changed so many things. And the church had to pivot. And every church in America had to pivot. And every church plant in America had to pivot. And I'll tell you, there's a lot of church plants that did not make it through COVID. We're blessed because we did make it through COVID. But see, here's something that happened. Everything changed. Everything on this side of COVID for a church is different. Nothing is the way that it was. Everything, watch this, everything that we had done in our two years of existence before COVID is now being redone, is now being done again. It's as if everything is starting over. It, it's, it's essentially not a church plant, but a church replant. That's why this lesson today is so important because Paris Valley Church is all new all over again. Everything we do is absolutely new again. So with that mindset, I want to go into our scripture today and and conquer this text this morning with an understanding that Paris Valley Church is again and and is and, and always has been a very an infant church, a very young church. Over the last few weeks in our study in the book of Acts, we were there at Pentecost and we were there when all of the apostles came together and the Holy Spirit came down on them and they started speaking in tongues amongst a lot of different people and thousands of people saw this and they came and were baptized and they became a part of the church. Acts chapter 2 verse 41 says that, that 3,000 people became part of the church that day. And we know that the apostles were a group at that moment of about 120 people. So on day number one of this brand new church, we have 3,100 20 people automatically just like that in case in the case that this very first church didn't know what to do they came together studied God's Word the Apostles led them in what it's going to take to build this church and they gave us an amazing example the example that they set has been the benchmark, has been the blueprint for churches for the last 2,000 years. It's what they did right away. Here's what happened 
As soon as those 3,000 people came into the community right away, we see this in Acts chapter 2, verse number 42. I'm going to put it up here on the screen. It says, all of the believers, now remember, over 3,000 of them, right? All of the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. That's what this community did. And we're going to study these four things this morning because these are really, really important to any church, but especially a new young church that is starting brand new all again. Write this down. This is point number one in your notes this morning. For those of you joining us for the first time, on the back of your bulletin, there's some fill-in-the-blanks, and those answers are going to be up here on the screen They might be in your chat room as well. I'd ask you to fill those in for me. A true Bible-believing, Jesus-following church must be dedicated to sound doctrine. That is so important. A true Bible-believing, Jesus-following church must be dedicated to sound doctrine. The Christians in the very first church, remember, some of them have only been Christians. They've only been part of this church for maybe a a few days. And, And they've dedicated themselves to correct Bible teaching. No one in this first church went to some kind of service concert thing and and, and saw the Holy Spirit come down on 12 guys and then went to YouTube to try and figure out what was going on and watched a video from some pastor that paid money to be at the top of their feed. Not what happened. I wasn't there, but I can promise you that what the apostles were teaching to that very first church was spot on was absolute truth. Let's go back even further than that, because I want, I want you to see where the apostles got their message from. They must have got their message from somewhere, right? Had to get it from somewhere, of course. They, they, got, it from, they got it from Jesus, but listen to this. Where did Jesus get his message from? You think, well, that's kind of obvious. Let's go to the book of John in chapter 7, verse 16. Jesus says this. He says, but where... I said, but where did Jesus get his message from? John 17, or 7, 16 says this, Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. So God the Father gives God the Son, message, this is what he's teaching, God the Son, Jesus on earth for three years, training men, come with me to Acts chapter 1, verse number 13. We read this a couple of weeks ago. It says this, and then they arrived, And they went upstairs into the room in the house that they were staying. Here are the names of who were present. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all met together, and they were constantly united in prayer, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women, and the brothers of Jesus. So here is this group of disciples. Here's this group that's getting taught by Jesus. They're getting taught directly, but I want you to see what else Jesus says in the Gospel of John chapter 14. Jesus says this. He says, I am telling you these things now. He's talking to his apostles. He says, I am telling you these things now, but when the Father sends the Advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and remind you of everything that I have told you. 
So the first Christian pastors, the apostles, they've been in three years of seminary training from the master professor and the Holy Spirit comes upon them, giving them the knowledge that they need to go out and teach other people. So you have the Holy Spirit now in their hearts, making, giving these apostles this, this extreme, this amazing knowledge. And within hours, the apostles are teaching to about 3,000 people who are there and part of this very first church with an open mind now. And it says the Holy Spirit reminded them of things that Jesus had said, things that Jesus had did, and, and now it makes sense. Some of you know that Kelly and I are parents of four kids, but two young ones that are, are still at home. And one of the things that's going on in our house right now is homework every night, homework every night. I'm not, I'm not going to lie to you. Some of this math is over my head. It is over my head. I wonder if as a parent you've ever had that problem, right? The kids bring home homework. Now, fortunately, I made it to the seventh grade with math until math got over my head. I, I think I'm doing a pretty good job. There are some parents who make it to about the second grade before the math is over their head. Don't raise your hand if that's you. But seventh grade math, and now I'm starting to remember. I'm starting to remember back when I was in pre-algebra, and now all those flashcards are starting to make sense. Now all of that homework is starting to make sense. There was, there's been a moment when it just clicked. Like, oh, I remember that. I get that now. And some of this stuff, it's taken me 40 years to actually get it. I didn't get it then, but I'm like, okay, it makes sense now. I wonder if you've ever had that time when something just autumn, it's like it makes sense now. Not only is this knowledge that the apostles have, not only is this knowledge a gift from God to be able to teach sound doctrine, but the apostles themselves are a gift to the church. Watch this. I want you to see what Paul says, what Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. This is in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul writes this. He says, now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and the teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people and do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. So the apostles, the men there the men, the leaders of this first church, a gift, the knowledge they have, a gift from God, them themselves are a gift that Jesus left and said, these men I have trained, Jesus was working on his church from day one, and the guys didn't even know it. They didn't know that they were going to be the, the pastors, that they were going to immediately have 3,000 people in this church. And now their job is to go out and train other people. You think, you got 12 guys now? This church is 3,000 people strong and growing every day. You're going to need more people. You're training more people. You have to train new teachers. You must train them up in sound doctrine. We train in a biblical context that is absolutely correct. They learn straight from Jesus, the Holy Spirit upon them. You have to train 
correct. See, if you train in error, training and teaching, here's the thing, it's so important. It's like, it's like throwing a stone in water. It's that ripple effect. See, if the church trains teachers in unsound doctrine, trains teachers wrong, you know what happens is teachers start training students who eventually, generationally, what you have, you have the wrong teaching 30 or 40 years later because back here somebody wasn't leading with sound doctrine. It is always that important. I often will warn people, and, and for those of you who have been here for a while, you know that I have warned you about the gospel of YouTube. If you are wondering about God, if you are thinking, I, I, I want to know more about God, your computer is probably the worst place that you could go to find answers. It's a terrible place to go and find answers. I'm going to beg of you to, to find a pastor, to find a Bible teacher, because Jesus trained the apostles who trained other pastors, who, who trained others, and they were not designed, they were not trained to make up their own doctrine. Look at this warning that the apostle Paul gives to his apprentice Timothy. I'm in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul writes this, For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching, they will follow their own desires and they will look for teachers who will tell them whatever they want their itching ears to hear. Do you recognize that in our culture today? Whatever it is that you think you believe, you can go online and you can find a teacher that claims to be a teacher and will teach you that. I promise. I have asked you before to question everything especially what you see on your computer and on Facebook and on your phone. It needs to be questioned. I beg of you to question me. Whatever you write down, whatever notes that you are taking here, go back and look it up. Go back and see it. Question everything. Because if it's not coming straight from the Bible, it is questionable. As a pastor, I don't want you to believe what I believe. That's not my job. I've said this numerous times, and I repeat this because it's so important. I want you to hear this. This is, you're not going to hear these words from me very often from the pulpit. You're not going to hear me say, I believe. That's pretty common. It's not common here because this is really important. It doesn't matter what I believe. It only matters what the Bible says. That really goes for any teacher. Yes, the, the, the teacher should, should be in line with biblical doctrine. But what ultimately matters is what the Bible says. I can, as human, I can believe something that is wrong. I did when I was a little kid. There was this pillow and a tooth thing. I'm not going to ruin it any more than that. But I can tell you that other people, places that you go to find a doctrine is going to be tainted by man. What is the resource that created that? Is that resource something online? Is that resource questionable? Question everything. Jesus didn't tell us to study the doctrine of the culture. He said to study my words, study truth. 
This first church, 3,120 people, they're on the right track. They have devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to sound a doctrine, and I want you to see what happens. Step number two, this is the second thing that they do. We're going to come back to Acts chapter uh, chapter 2, verse number 42. I'll read it again. All of the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. Here's point, um, point number two in your notes this morning. If the church, this is important, if the church is not a building, but rather the people, the church must be dedicated to each other. If the church is not a building, and we say that often, right? We say, oh, it's the people. If the church is the people, if we believe that it is the people, we must be dedicated to each other. I'll tell you, there are some churches that are more dedicated to their building than they are to their people. The church is the people. We must be dedicated to each other. In Greek, this word is kononia. It means fellowship. It, it, it's, it means being connected together. The church must be dedicated to each other. Close bonds. As close as you can be as a family from different mothers and fathers, but as close as you can be. That's how close the church was. Up north of us grow some of the tallest trees in the world, the giant redwoods. Some of them are 300 feet tall. And, and get this, some of them were actually growing on earth when Jesus walked the earth. They are 2,500 years old, some of these trees. Now, 300 feet, let me put that into perspective, that's 30 stories high. It would make sense that if you have a tree that is 30 stories high, that you would have roots that go down at least 15, 20 stories to hold that tree in the ground, right? But redwoods don't have deep roots. What they have is a root system that is very shallow, but it's all intertwined. Each tree's roots are intertwined with the next tree. They are locking into each other. They're interconnected. That's what keeps them strong and secure is because underground, they are all coming together. When the storm comes, when the wind blows, the redwoods stand, but they don't stand alone. They stand together. They support each other. That's the church. Watch this. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse number 9 and 10. Two people are better than one, for they can help each other succeed. But if one person falls, another can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Let me tell you something about the importance of this. God never... Oh, this, this is so important. When it comes to the church... God never, ever gave us permission to handpick who we go to church with. You might want to write that down. God never gave us permission to handpick who we go to church with. There were 3,000 people that came to this very first church. This much I can tell you. They were from different cultures. Some of them were Jews, some of them were there from Jerusalem, some of them were from Galilee, some of them were Greeks that came from other areas of the world, some of them were one color, some of them were another color, they came from everywhere. Do you think, can't you think, can you imagine this, 
that there must have been a couple of people in that church who normally wouldn't get along, right? We've got different races. We've got different languages. We don't get to choose who we go to church with, and it really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter why, because church is so much bigger than who is at church. What matters is why we're at church. How can you be dedicated how can you be dedicated to somebody who, who you can't stand? How can you be dedicated to, 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 to somebody who doesn't look like you? How can you be dedicated, watch this, how can you be dedicated to somebody who doesn't give their fair share? How can you be dedicated to somebody that you know is less dedicated than you are? Because you're dedicated, right? Not everyone is that dedicated. How can you be dedicated to it? How you do it is by remembering why you do it. 3,120 people at that first church, they were devoted to fellowship. Personalities don't matter. They're saying why we're here is more important. Fellowship is what brought them together. They said we are a church. Watch this. Fellowship is not forced. Fellowship is desired. That's not a point up here, but you can write that one down too. Fellowship is not forced. Fellowship is desired. If you are not desiring the, uh, the fellowship of people in your church, something is wrong. If you are not desiring, it's not just fellowshipping. If you are not desiring the fellowship of people in your church, something is wrong. When somebody, when somebody at the church complains, you say, you know, well, so-and-so isn't quite as dedicated as everyone else because so-and-so doesn't show up all the time, and so-and-so isn't here for this. We could rather say, hey, you know what? I'm going to call them, and I'm going to say, you know, I'm calling you because I'm dedicated to you, because you're part of my church family, and I desire fellowship with you. I want to see you. I long for your company. I want to spend time with you because you are part of my family. If it's not your church family who you're spending time with, the question is, who are you spending time with? Who is it? Who are your friends? Watch what Paul writes again. He's writing to a church in Corinth. This is in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. He says, don't team up with those who are unbelievers. How can righteousness be a partner with wickedness? How could light live in darkness? Now, I'm going to read this out of the New King James Version, the same exact thing, and you'll recognize some of this, okay? Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with wickedness, and what communion has light with darkness? It says, do not be unequally yoked. Now, we don't use that term a lot in our culture. We really don't. They would have understood it because a yoke was, a, it was an agricultural term. There were a lot of farmers back in this area. And I need you in your mind to think back to a time that you didn't, think back to an old western or an episode of Little House on the Prairie, Okay. And you've got this farm, and they are plowing the fields. A yoke, it's a tool. It's an agricultural tool. And it's this big wooden thing that goes around the neck of, of cows or oxen, okay? 
And a double yoke, you could put two oxen in, and it would go over their necks, and the farmer can control where the oxen goes. Okay, this is a, a very heavy piece of equipment. But what you have to do is you have to put, this is important, you have to put two animals of about the same size in those yokes so that you could properly plow the field. It would make absolutely no sense to put an ox on one side and a kitty cat on the other side. That doesn't plow the field. That is being unequally yoked. But see, if you are unequally yoked, not only are you fighting against the field that you're trying to plow, you're also fighting against the partner that is right here. You're, you're fighting against the fact that, that this, this kitty cat is not helping you plow the field. You are unequally yoked and everything is a fight now spiritually because there's a problem. Because something is wrong. It's who are you fellowshipping with? It's so important who we're spending time with. This first church, they spent time with each other. And we're going to see in the next few chapters how they actually lived with each other. And we'll dive into that a little bit more. But, but they're members of, the, of this very first church. They devoted themselves to each other. When they went out to eat, they went out to eat together. When they went camping with their families, they went camping with their families together. When they got out up on Saturday morning to go look at yard sales, they went and looked at yard sales together. What they did, they were together because they were devoted to each other as close as a family could be. They desired each other's company. So now we have a community of believers who are dedicated to sound doctrine. They're dedicated to learning correct scripture, and they're dedicated to each other. It doesn't stop there. Come back with me to Acts chapter, chapter 2, verse number 42. It'll be up here on the screen again. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. I'm going to jump to verse number 44. It says this, and all of the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. And they sold their property and possessions, and they shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the Lord's temple each day, and they met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and they shared their meals with great joy and generosity. And we're going to dive into that a little bit more in the next couple of weeks, but I want you to see this. This is point number three in your notes this morning. While together, the congregation of the church must be dedicated to remembering the sacrifice that Jesus made. While together, the church, the congregation of the church, must be dedicated to remembering the sacrifice that Jesus made. We can come together every week and we can learn stories about Jesus, but if it doesn't have this application, then it's, it's, a, it's another story. The application, the application of the gospel is, is God made you you sinned, Jesus didn't, the penalty is death, Jesus stepped up, paid that penalty for you with his own life. That's the gospel message. They came together to take the Lord's Supper and, and remember that moment, remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for them. And I want you to know that, that when Jesus hung on that cross, we all know who it should have been. But see, here's the thing. Even if it was you, 
Your one death wouldn't be enough to pay for your many sins. That's why it had to be Jesus. We know that the people at this very first church, they came together, they they ate together, and many scholars have translated this to say they came together for the Lord's Supper. And Jesus, if you think about this, Jesus had only led the apostles in the Lord's Supper maybe a month ago in real time. It wasn't too long ago that they were in the upper room. And now the apostles, teachers of 3,000 plus people, are saying, we are going to do this in remembrance. I want you all to remember why. I want you all to recognize in their mind that big event that went on about six weeks ago when Jerusalem was just a madhouse and it was on fire because everyone was just in an uproar, that day, I want you to remember that that day Jesus died for you. They're making sure that the memory of the cross never goes unrecognized. Roger Rose he faced a lot of sorrow as a, as a child. His, his younger brother was fatally injured, was killed. They lived on a dirt road, and there really weren't many cars that ever came by this dirt road. But one day his brother was out riding across the street on his bike. A car comes over the hill and hits his brother on his bike. And this just tears the family apart. His dad went across the street and picked up this mangled bike and with tears in his eyes just walks across the street and takes it to a place in the barn and just sits it down in a corner of a barn that they don't use very often. Over the years, time would would help to heal, but that bike stayed right there in the corner of the barn, and Roger would go into the barn every now and then, and he'd come across it, and whenever he saw that bicycle, he would just start crying. He grew up knowing that that reminded him of his brother, and now he doesn't want to throw it away because that is a memorial. He prayed, he prayed, he says, Lord, keep the memory of your death fresh in me that every time I partake in this memorial prayer meal, this memorial supper, it makes my heart feel this, this stern, this strong remembrance as if your death occurred yesterday. Never let the communion service become just a formality. Let it be a a tender and touching experience for my heart. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, Paul writes this. He says, when we bless the cup at the Lord's table, aren't we sharing in the blood of Christ? And, And when we take the bread, aren't we sharing in the body of Christ? We take the Lord's Supper, and we do this to remember what Jesus did for us. There's one more important thing that this first church did together. And I'm going to read this again from Acts chapter 2, verse number 42. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals and the Lord's Supper and to prayer. Here's the fourth point in your notes this morning is this. A new church must be dedicated to corporate prayer. 
all of the believers are together, and they're all praying together. Now, we can pray individually. There is something about praying together. Even a thousand people that are in their homes praying individually in, in different places, it's, it's not the same as a thousand people in one place that are praying together. I don't want to take anything away from individual prayer. It's so important. Individual prayer, corporate prayer, community prayer, fellowship prayer, church prayer, connecting prayer. We need prayer. This is praying with and for the body of believers, and they're doing it together. In Acts chapter 10, this is a, or Acts chapter 12, this is 10 chapters later, and we're going to get to this in a few weeks. We see this, but while Peter was in prison, the church prayed very earnestly for him. We'll get to that, but see who prayed for him? It wasn't individuals, it was the church that prayed for him. In the book of Philippians chapter 4, Paul writes this. He says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all that he has done. Paul is writing a letter not to an individual. He's writing a letter to an entire church. He's telling the entire church to pray about everything. In the book of Colossians, Paul's writing another letter to the church in Colossae, and he writes this. He says, devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. He is telling the entire church to pray. Pray together. Come together as individuals, but come together with a single prayer. Be of alert mind together. Be of a thankful heart together. I know that everyone here, I know that at some point in your life, God answered a prayer. And I know that you went back to God to thank Him for that answered prayer. I know that. And that was a huge deal in your life. But imagine, imagine this. Imagine how big and how grand it is when God answers a church's prayer. It is a huge answer to a community prayer. You know where that thankfulness is? We all recognize now the power that God answers prayer. The entire church, not just a church member, the entire church comes and says, thank you, God, for answering our prayer. I wonder how many people ever go to a Dodger game by themselves. Game's at 7 o'clock, there's 55,000 seats here, one person shows up. Home run, one guy, yay! Like, one guy in the entire stadium, right? Like, all the players down there, they're listening. Now, I don't want to take anything away from that one voice, but what's the difference now when that stadium is jam-packed? Every seat is full of somebody. Now, you crack that home run and everyone is standing up cheering now. How much more powerful is that? You can hear that prayer from miles away. And everyone there now is celebrating the same exact thing. There is the same prayer when the church comes together and prays and rejoices together and recognizes God's gifts together and gives God thanks together. It is so important to come together in corporate prayer. And finally, I want, to, I want you to see what the result of these actions are. 
Acts chapter 2, verse number 47, it says, They did all of this while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Each day the Lord added to their fellowship. And now people are going to say that this is a roadmap to 3,000 people coming to church. But I will say, this is, these are four important points that the first church left new churches as an example to say, look, don't forget these. Look, make these important. What is the goal of a church? Well, it's to lead others to Christ, right? That's what the church does. The church, the people... Don't do this individually, members praying individual prayers. Yes, important, but the church comes together. We come together to pray. We come together to study sound doctrine. We come together not to take care of number one. No, we come together to take care of each other because that is what God has blessed the community to do. That's what he's blessed the church, the people. That's what he's blessed the church to do. This church grew every single day. They added every single day. How connected is this church to one another? How dedicated is this church to sound doctrine? How dedicated to prayer are we corporately as a church? 